Hey, Joel. What's up, Tim? I don't get this movie. Crimson Jihad wants to blow up a nuclear bomb on an uninhabited island in the Florida Keys. Why don't they just do us a favor and blow up Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville? It's like 30 miles west. Tim, you're being kind of super critical. Welcome to the first episode of our podcast, Super Critical, where we delve into the fun and sometimes nonsensical way pop culture covers nuclear issues. We watch a movie or a TV show and then needlessly overanalyze it. I am Tim Westmeyer. I am a nuclear enthusiast who has studied the history and policy of nuclear weapons and have also been told I'm the annoying person you watch a movie with when it has these kind of issues as a plot device and won't shut up about why things are correct or not correct. One of those kind of people. But that's why I have my esteemed co-host. Hi, my name is Joel. Uh, I'm a good friend of Tim's, so that makes me completely qualified to be on this podcast on a recurring basis to comment on each movie that we have to discuss. But otherwise, I am a completely uh, ignorant layman but well-intentioned and interested to uh, discuss movies and all things pop culture, especially when it comes to nuclear weapons and nuclear energy in movies. Great. Well, I hope you enjoy it. Um, I know we, we did certainly watching the movies that we do, and the podcast essentially will try to look at a range of entertainment, uh, mostly movies. Um, that's where the good stuff is, but some TV, maybe even some books and music uh, if we can find some good ways to cover these things. But we'll talk about the context of, of how these movies or films or whatever happens to be covers nuclear issues. What are the crazy parts, and uh, more or less, how does this? What does this say about the world and how we understand nuclear issues? We'll wax poetic a little bit about this, uh, and then hopefully we all learn a bit, a little bit more, and uh, also enjoy some crazy nonsense. So today we watched the 1994 classic True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jamie Lee Curtis, and the action star known as Tom Arnold. Uh, this is a movie that was directed by James Cameron, who we all know from Aliens, Terminator, and now the non uh, now forgotten Avatar. Um, R-rated comedy, uh, one of the first movies ever to have a more than a hundred million dollar script. So you know, pretty, pretty kind of a big deal. Uh, but it's also based on a, a 1991 French movie called. Uh, well, you're the one that actually can pronounce French. What? How would you go with this? La Totale. La Totale. Uh, supposedly, I'm also an expert in French. That'll in be in addition to nuclear issues. Good. That'll that'll be what we'll draw on um, for all of our future French movies. But it's interesting, right? So. Arnold saw this movie and he brought the script to James Cameron and thought it would be an interesting character study. Um, <laughs> right. But that's always good when Arnold Schwarzenegger comes up to you and is like, I think this would be an excellent character study that we should explore through film. It's good. Um, I mean, it, was, it did well. It was a, one of the top rated, rated R comedies of that year. Made $150 million or so in the domestic box office. And it's also uh, Ben Carson, presidential candidate Ben Carson's supposed favorite movie. What? Yeah. So it, it's left quite an impression on, on everybody. It informs my foreign policy. <laughs> so it's an interesting one. Um, the context of this is fascinating. It, it seems to be right at the a, a good, interesting time in history. So it's right after the Cold War, but before 9-11. Um, concerns about loose nuclear weapons and, and weapons sold to terrorists or stolen from stockpiles was certainly on the mind of a lot of people, um, but also rising terrorist uh, concerns uh, about or concerns about terrorism from the Middle East and 
and some of those kind of things. The, one of the, the part of the movie references uh, weapons stolen from Merv sites in Kazakhstan, so which is interesting because those three countries, uh, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine, right after the end of the Cold War, Soviet Union disappeared. It was only Russia that was pretty much left. Those countries had nuclear arsenals and delivery systems left on their soil. And not bad uh, thing to wake up to, you know, with Christmas coming right around the corner to see that underneath your Christmas tree. But these things, they were left with these weapons and trying to figure out what to do with them. So they had to sign an agreement that was negotiated after the START Treaty. To in So this was, I think it was 94 when the movie came out, 92 when this uh, agreement, the Lipson Protocols, were signed. And it wasn't until 1996 that they actually get all of the weapons back to Russia in exchange for security guarantees from, from Russia, their former uh, you know, dictator or oppressor country uh, overlords, um, but be able to also have economic exchanges and some of those things. So this is a big deal. Uh, so, but I guess it, they didn't work that well because uh, Crimson Jihad was able to steal some of those merved weapons uh, out of there, and then Arnold has to chase them after. So, Joel, why don't you talk a little bit about um, the the plot of this? You, as an everyday man watching this, what do, what do you what do you take away from this? Well, I think it's an excellent character study. <laughs> as uh, as some have called it, uh, we have Arnold Schwarzenegger, who I think has a long history of deep character analyses in in his films. Um, who is a uh, his name is Harry in the movie. Who by day, at least ostensibly, to his wife is a mild mannered computer salesman who just happens to be traveling around the world, going to various sales conferences, trying to sell. What were advanced computers in 1994 using the latest version of Windows, which wasn't even Windows 95, I take it. Uh, in any case, uh, probably, probably the latest, uh, dial-up modem. Maybe. Right, exactly. Might have, might even be, you know, 48. Yeah, you know, blazing, blazing fast. Uh, but in fact, he was not a computer salesman. Wait, but not? Not. Salesman. No, nay. Uh, during the day, he and his, uh, his compatriots, uh, walk into a, a secret office, uh, and proceed to try to save the world on a regular basis as your average mild mannered spy. Hmm. Jet setting around to Switzerland and, uh, basically any other spot trying to track down terrorists or any other threats to national security. Um, I believe the name of his agency, we were always curious to just to go back because we both hadn't watched this movie uh, in quite some time, just to go back and figure out which agency he was in. Uh, was it the FBI, the CIA, mm-hmm. things like that? Uh, but no, instead it was a fictional agency, if I remember correctly. It was the Omega... Omega Force? Omega Agency? Omega, Omega Agency? Force. Yeah. The last line of defense. The last line of defense. That was literally stenciled into the floor... <laughs> With the giant logo, I always want. I always thought, you know, it's not very low key if you have the name of your agency, you know, literally pressed into had, the floor. They had, had to get through that long white hallway and the in the gun toting secretary. Once right. you get past that, right? They, they have they have the uh, the holiday party stuff fired up on the board. Yeah, they have probably have gold stars for the yeah. terrorists they take down. Well, I wondered if they saved all their budget because everything's just white paneled in the, mm. the the hallway. They're like, well, we got this budget for the the renovation for the office. Why don't we put the giant name of our our secret agency on the floor, you know. Well, you got to have priorities, Joel. Right, exactly. But anyways, I digress. So, uh, Harry is a spy. He's, uh, at the beginning of the movie, uh, looking into some suspicious characters um, who they think could have connections with terrorists. 
Fast forward a little bit, Arnold, uh, as Harry, uh, get on the case of uh, some antiquities dealers mm-hmm. who – Always seem, suspicious. Always suspicious. I mean, we, we're in the D.C. area. We, we see all these museum antiquities folks and they're just up to no good. I mean, obviously. Uh, but we, we see uh, Harry – Looking into some terrorist activities, one thing leads to another, and then all of a sudden they're getting shot at by some random folks, and they're on the scent of potential terrorists who we learn uh, could be involved in the disappearance of various nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they, they say uh, f- four MIRVED uh, weapon systems. I couldn't tell if they meant four MIRV missiles. I guess maybe some sort of mobile MIRV system and MIRVs are multiple independently targeted reentry vehicles. So these are missiles usually fired from submarines, um, but they also used to be fired from mobile launchers in the Soviet Union, as well as ICBMs, these intercontinental ballistic missiles fired from the ground in silos. These are things you fire one missile up and instead of hitting one target and blowing up one thing, you can have maybe six to 10 warheads independent in those. Now it like limits Roughly, they can't go everywhere in the world, but within a set area, you can have 10 targets independently launched. So that way, you have one missile goes up, you only have to secure one missile, and you don't have to worry about as many other of your uh, arsenal being attacked. Uh, you could fire up one, it seems like it's a cost saver, but it was really difficult to maintain, and supposedly not well secured. Cost saver. End, yeah, not well, of a main, uh, not really well secured at the end of the Cold War, if uh, a Crimson Jihad was able to grab them. Although it sounds like it was... Someone that was in that area must have stolen them, whether it was diverted from some underpaid Russian commander or whoever it was able to get their hands on them. So pretty scary stuff. Yeah. So in the movie, uh, they're tracking down these suspicious characters. They know these four warheads have disappeared. They're not exactly about the, the direct connection. But when they start getting followed and shot at at a Georgetown Mall, they think something's up. Now, interestingly, this is where I think True Lies becomes an interesting movie, and I think why True Lies has lived on as kind of a beloved movie of you know Arnold, at least mm-hmm. as far as you rank his movies, is that almost by well, by accident, uh, Harry runs goes to his wife's office, stumbles onto a phone conversation that his wife is having with some mysterious guy named Simon. All of a sudden, he thinks she might be having an affair. Mm. And the movie really takes a complete turn from a typical Arnold Schwarzenegger action movie to one that's uh, brokenhearted Harry, the computer salesman slash spy who thinks his wife might be having an affair, who then proceeds to enlist his entire unit to spy on his wife to try to figure out who this guy is. Yeah, they weren't busy with anything else. Right, you know. So literally we have a federal agency taking their resources off of tracking down terrorists with potentially nuclear weapons mm-hmm. and reallocating them. You know, it makes sense. Why wiretapping your wife? Right. That kind of, I mean, to, he just uh, found out that his child was stealing from Tom Arnold. Right, that's Although, true. to be fair, that's who true. hasn't? So, um, you know, there are a lot of problems yeah. in this suburban D.C. household. <laughs> so what what – could, what could you do more to alleviate that than to have an entire federal team of uh, you know, federal officials tracking down your wife? Uh, in any case, so we this have work, this works out well for uh, Simon, right? Exactly, played by the stellar Bill Paxton. I must say, I mean, I mean, in all seriousness, one of the best performances in the movie, I think, of Simon, who uh, self-described nothing, 
uh, self-described coward. <laughs> nasal lint. <laughs> Navel lint. Navel lint. Navel lint. Uh, nasal lint would also be uh, any sort of lint, really. Right. Right. I remember like. That's like one of the key quotes I remember from that entire movie. Like years later. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, we're 20, 21 years uh, since that movie? Yeah, wow. And I still randomly drop, you know. Well, that to be fair, that was, that was mostly because people in high school called you that. So. Right, that's true. Uh, you know, I had an issue. I'm sorry, we'll edit this yeah. out. Yeah. So uh, they're tracking down the wife. They they run into Bill Paxton. They realize he's, he's not a, a major issue. We'll get back to the nuclear issues, I promise. And then all of a sudden, Harry and his wife are abducted by the terrorists again. So, you know, you've, you've almost completely lost interest in these terrorists who mm-hmm. you don't really know anything about or their motivations other than they're terrorists with guns, so they're and, doing terrorist things. And fairly good at motorcycle riding. Yes, that's true. And then all of a sudden, they've abducted them. They take them to uh, the Keys off of uh, Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, then say, they, they say an island off of Marathon Key, which is kind of right in the middle right. between Key West and the continental Florida. Right. Uh, and then we proceed to learn that the antiquities dealer, played by Tia Carrera, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, has assisted Crimson Jihad with transporting four nuclear warheads. Dun, dun, uh, dun. I guess we should note th- this is a spoiler alert. I mean, I guess we are doing a play-by-play. So Every, Everything you know, and anything. It's assumed that this whole podcast is a spoiler alert. Um, That's how you really get in the weeds of this. Right, exactly. They have transported said nuclear warheads through the antiquities that the antiquities dealer has transported from ancient Persia to the United States, which they decided, hey, let's go to Florida <laughs> to uh, to move them of yeah, all I places. Mean, I mean, I recently went to Florida, uh, the Florida Keys on my honeymoon, and when I was there, there was a lot of uh, you know c- coconut conch shells uh, right next to the Persian artifacts. Right. It just blends well together. People down there have a, they're wonderful. They have a lot of sense of culture. Right. I mean, I'm not going to read too much into this, but if you're a terrorist and you're like, where should we go to plot our, you know, our, our efforts to overtake the United States or whatever? And someone goes, let's go to Florida to do it. <laughs> I'm thinking that guy just needs some vacation. Why not just give him an extra two weeks? You know, well, it's, like, it's, it's pretty, yeah, exactly. They're like, just trying to get a double whammy. You know, you want to, it's like, have, Jerry, come well, on, have be Have vacation honest. plus. Jerry, just, just be honest. Do you want to go to the beach? And it's like, no, no, we can do work. It's like, just just take two weeks off. Well, I mean, it's funny because they say that they landed on a uh, some sort of an island that is off of the Marathon Keys, but is still connected to the bridge by the, the bridge highway system. Right. But still 12 miles out enough far at the end of the movie, spoiler alert again, when the bomb goes off, that everyone's okay. I, right. I, I, there are not any bridges that are like that, at least not that I right. saw when we drove up and down that a couple of times. Seems right. like it's pretty far, but whatever. I mean, but there's a rationale to all this. Okay, why they're why they're on this island? So Explain as we me. learn, uh, when the 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 terrorist leader uh, brings out Harry and his wife, that they have their four nuclear warheads. They're going to detonate one on this island to show uh, – to demonstrate their power, I think was the quote. Wait, wait, sorry, real quick. I just realized this. He says in the movie that it's a MIRV-6, which Correct. means that it has six warheads on that model of the MIRV. A lot of times MIRVs could have between six and ten and they may not load all of them up onto that individual missile itself. Okay. So if there are only four in the movie but it was a MIRV-6, interesting. I wonder if there's two missing somewhere out there. So maybe that was the, maybe that was the idea for the sequel. But – Oh, I thought each one was a 
that's what's interesting because they said that they, they lost four Mervs in the earlier part of the movie. Right. But then later on, he says that particular warhead, Arnold does, says it from – it's from a Merv 6, right. which means one Merv – you alternate. Mervs are supposed to be about the reentry vehicles, but sometimes you'll say a Merved weapon will – like a, 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 a Merv missile. Okay. Like a Merv 6 missile, which is an odd way of saying it, but that's usually how it's described as uh, a missile that has six independently targeted reentry vehicles. On that missile. So hmm. if there are four Mervs missing, that's four sets of warheads. I don't know. This, this is where the movie kind of goes. And it, they're really sure exactly what the details are going to be about. But sorry. A movie being short on details, that's why we've got to be super critical. Yeah. It's exactly what we're here for. Right. So we're at the, we're at the nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we learn they're going to detonate one bomb in Florida <laughs> while Jerry's on the beach. On this, I love how he says on this un, uninhabited island because it's humanitarian purposes. Yeah, to show our humanitarian side, which yeah. is, well, you know, you've already shot a couple dozen people. But, sure. you know, we're not that bad. And about to undercut it when you maybe blow up Miami. but Right. But, you know, details. They're still well-intentioned. Uh-huh. And we find that the reason why they brought Harry and his wife to the site is to validate or verify that they do have, in fact, uh, uh, nuclear weapons in their mm-hmm. possession. So, well, although the- of course, blowing one up on an island would certainly verify that it works right, and that right. they have one. But-, but but you know, pre YouTube, they still felt the need to record video. So you see a guy with a with yeah. old school tape, you know, Try- video recorder, trying to get very viral. Yeah, right, 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 exactly. So. Um, so fast forward, you know, we uh, they are able to escape. Uh, the bomb does go off off of Florida. Um, Arnold then goes off, does his action movie thing, um, stops the terrorists from exploding another bomb, um, I guess, in Miami. Mm-hmm. Um, the famous bridges out scene. The, the famous bridges out scene. Um, so I, th- I think generally we know how it ends, you know. Positive end for the heroes, bad end for the the terrorists, mm-hmm. as as we have to as we see in all Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah, movie, and a wonderful but, a wonderful end for the for the for the marriage too. Exa- oh, exactly, exactly. Uh, so maybe let's start the kind of the in depth discussion going back to when they first see those warheads pulled out of the antiquities. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim, you know, I I am I know nothing of nuclear issues, and again that that makes me qualified to be on this podcast. So I, I'm going to play the the well intentioned. Sure. Uh, idiot here and just ask you so when you when they roll out I'm, those... I'm going to play the guy that pretends like he knows what he's talking right. about right so w- when they roll out these these weapons they're probably in the size of I think we were talking like closest thing would be maybe a coffin size mm-hmm. you know like a large horizontal shaped uh, rectangle box thing they open it up and then there's a great exchange with the terrorist and Arnold Schwarzenegger who says do you know what this is and he goes oh I know what this is so Tim from, from that let, let's go through what Arnold says it is in that movie and then what you picked up from your own kind of research into sure. these weapons. Well, it, it's certainly not a water heater uh, or a snow cone maker. Um, but although it is, the warheads do look a little bit like snow cones just without the – or ice cream cones or snow cones just without the, the juicy flavoring on the top, just kind right. of just the cone itself. Right. Uh, I don't know. Nicely I mean, painted too. It's, yeah, nicely painted, although I'm always wondering why they painted them. I guess for when they have parades and right. all that kind of stuff, you want to be able to demonstrate that you uh, – have a, a good sense of style. Um, well, so the quote is, is, is a, is, is a Soviet Merv six from an S S 22 N launch vehicle. I don't do Arnold impressions. The warhead contains 
14.5 or whatever they say kilograms of enriched uranium with a plutonium trigger, and the nominal yield is 30 kilotons. So this I think it's a, funny. This is a Soviet move six from that says 22 and yeah, it's not good. That's right. No, yeah, yeah. Ar- Arnold can't be here today. Um, but so, but it is interesting. So that description all put together, it sounds good because it's supposed to be the thing that that convinces Jamie Lee Curtis finally that she married a spy. But it's a little bit of nonsense when you put that all together. Again, this is probably just movie talk. Let's break it down. Let's, break get, it down. let's get super critical here. So the SS-22N, um, there was an SS-22 launch vehicle, but it really was never – It was a there was a conventional version and there was a nuclear version, but it never was a MERV system because MERV systems tend to be what we call strategic. They're – they're the things that are – and this is a little bit of a definition between strategic weapons and tactical weapons. There, it, there isn't a clear definition, but tactical weapons tend to be used in the battlefield. They're smaller weapons, smaller yield. And you the, mean all tactical nuclear weapons. Tactical nuclear, all nuclear weapons. Nuclear here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so tactical nuclear weapons and comes are called theater nuclear weapons. These are the kind of things that you use on the battlefield. You want to be able to stop a, a, a tank battalion that's chasing you or you want to be able to make an area uh, – Unpassable for some sort of troops or movements and those kind of things tend to be smaller yield. Tend to be things that aren't launched very far. They're not intercontinental. They're you which see- kind of goes against, I think, from my perspective, that kind of goes against, I think, what most people, uh, how most people view nuclear weapons, especially in movies. Usually, you see where it's some sort always of a like yeah. a world-ending, yep. you know, city-destroying. You know, lights out, Terminator 2, Judgment Day kind of situation. Oh, another Arnold film mm-hmm. foreshadowing we'll to the that. next podcast. We'll Who get to knows? That. But it, it's it's interesting that you know to get into that detail where you had smaller weapons uh, and and to think about how they were used or at least theorized to be used. Well, it's funny because they they say it's from a Soviet uh, MIRF, um, but they say it's the yield is I think I remember the movie it says like thirty kilotons. Well, that seems very small. That seems pretty small compared to what we normally consider to be for, for MERV systems. Um, for like, for example, the, the bomb in Hiroshima that was used to end World War II, that was around 13 kilotons. Um, the bomb that was used in Nagasaki, also to end World War II, that was around 21 kilotons. So the idea was, I mean, tw- 30 is close to that amount. And I'm sure there might be some tactical nuclear weapons. There's different de- estimates about what the size those are. They might be along the lines of those, but we certainly didn't fire those kind of warhead sizes through MERV systems or these kind of large launch vehicles. Those tended to be much larger. Um, the let's see here, uh, I wrote a few notes ahead of time. Um, MERVs in the at least the modern U.S. warhead system that were that were around in the '90s for the U.S. were close to, to between 300 to 600 kilotons, so pre- pretty big. That's an example. That's the MERV. That's the U.S. MERV, the W87 ICBM warhead, or um, the W88, which we used in our submarines. That was around 475 kilotons, and Soviet missiles, in particular, were tended to be much larger because their missiles weren't as accurate. So, if you are trying to fire to hit something and you're not as accurate, you know, sure where it's going to land, you want to make sure it has a bigger bomb, bigger mm-hmm. explosion radius near the end. So, those tended to be more around 500 to 700 kilotons um, range for that for that size um, tend to be even maybe even larger than that maybe even in terms of megatons so it's kind of funny that they that they pick 30 I wonder always why they did that seems like Sounds near the good. end of the near the end of the movie it's on an island and Jamie Lee Curtis and Arnold Schwarzenegger share a nice warm embrace 
and rekindle their marriage spark while in the middle of this in the shadow of in the, the, sh- in the shadow blast. of nuclear bomb. So maybe yeah. if it was any larger than that, they realized, uh, well, this would actually be a pretty big deal because it's funny when the bomb goes off at the end of the movie, it's kind of not a big deal. There's no discussion about <laughs> the like, fact that a new world bomb, is about to change. The world is about to change. It, no one, no one seems to die. There's no fallout. Everything's fine. The bo- the the blast radius, the the shock wave. You can see it, but it doesn't go out that far. They say they're 12 miles out, or at least that's the safe area. It's, it's okay, Tim, because Tom Arnold Tom Arnold, got everything under he's control. He's got his bullhorn, yeah. Uh, I really if the hope president needs somebody to deal with nuclear fallout, he calls up Tom Arnold. I hope not. I hope he's not in charge of civil defense. But, but that's an interesting point because, again, for the lay person who's in a movie mm-hmm. theater or at home you know, watching the, the DVD or Blu-ray, it's like – if it was thirty or three hundred, I mean that's that that's an interesting point. Would would any average person kind of get that that size I don't distinction? Know. I mean, it's it's interesting because it, it, these are certainly numbers that are farther than we ever imagined for conventional weapons. Mm-hmm. Like when they first did the the United States did the first nuclear bomb test in Alamogordo, New Mexico, the Trinity test is what the code name was. They did a test a few days beforehand. So when you say you know, 30 kilotons. What that means is 30 kiloton equivalent, like size of a conventional explosion, like TNT. Mm-hmm. So they did a test before that. They took 100 tons of ex- conventional explosives, blew it up out in the middle of the desert, and used all of their calibration system to, to see, scale it. To scale it. it. Then they scaled it up when they did the Trinity test, and that's how they were able to figure out what the equivalent is. So when we talk uh, about those kind of things, that's what that means. It's not a matter of like the amount of explosions that happen. It's more it's a conventional explosive equivalent in in terms of mass of the of the TNT. Okay. Right. So that's kind of what we mean by that. So the idea that thirty kilotons—that's thirty thousand tons. That's right. a lot. That's we don't build TNT bombs that size. So to someone, except in Looney Tunes, except in Looney Tunes, yeah. Uh, poor poor Wiley Coyote. So that's scary stuff. So when people say thirty kilotons and they hear that, that sounds pretty big. But it's certainly not what we think about the kind of weapons that existed um, in terms of right. strategic weapons in the 90s. Okay. It seemed like almost – it would be a, not a waste, but it just doesn't have that impact that they were trying to go for when they want – when the Soviet Union wanted to hold U.S. cities or U.S. military installations at risk. 30 kilotons isn't very much because a lot of these things that they're targeting, either a U.S. missile silo – if they wanted to hit first before these weapons were used in Montana or Colorado, wherever we happen to have our missile fields, uh, where they think they have our missile fields, those things are tend to be hardened. They're under concrete bunkers. They're underground. Okay. We put them there specifically because we thought they'd be safe there. So then you have to make a larger bomb or a more accurate missile to be able to actually go out these kind of things. So these that's why they're tend to, they tend to be bigger for that kind of purpose. So here's a question then. If these were based in – Kazakhstan, mm-hmm. as was stipulated early on in the movie by one of Arnold's uh, compatriots. What do you think that that device would have been used for? If it, if it was a small mm-hmm. – if that was actually the size and you know we could go back to look at what was actually housed in Kazakhstan. But I mean would it have, what would have been the closest population center that it might have been used? Well, uh, what's fascinating is that they, they keep saying that it's from a MIRV. So right. MIRVs don't – aren't really used for like theater operations, which is what that yield would give an indication for. Right. Now, it used to be in a lot of movies in the 90s and the 80s um, that are about nuclear things being stolen. James Bond, lots of these kind of things. Uh, talked about suitcase bombs, those mm-hmm. kind of things. Those are the smaller bombs because those are the kind of things that you would use, you would bring to a 
uh, of a, a certain area and then launch it and fire it. There used to be during the Cold War, there were army commanders when we used to have artillery that would fire the, the Davy Crockett system. Right. It was, or artillery would fire a nuclear weapon. It would explode it. You didn't want to have anything that was too big because then the people that were firing the missile would be gone be too. Yeah. You would, you essentially would have a lot of uh, people, your own people get destroyed. Mm-hmm. But there was, there was army commanders that what their job was, they would be, they would have a, a nuclear backpack, which isn't a size of a backpack exactly. It's about the size of a coffin kind of thing. It's pretty big and round and you, they fire it out, out of an airplane. Um, they, and they parachute down with it. They set it up and they put it on a timer. And this is in the event of the Soviet Union having their conventional military, which was much larger than the NATO forces. If they were marching west, they wanted to set these bombs off at strategic locations. And then these people that do this, they hope that they can get out. Tend to be what they would do is they would jump into the water and swim <laughs> to a submarine. And then these things would go off on a timer and it would okay. blow up that area. So that way Soviet troops couldn't march through there. They could jump into a uh, refrigerator maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe and we'll that, cover oh, that. F- foreshadowing? Oh, we'll oh, do cool. – I'm sure we'll do that one at some point. Old Indy. The Russia really has a lot of these small, smaller relatively compared nuclear weapons, these theater – uh, tactical nuclear weapons. They have a lot of them, um, mostly because they, they have tended to rely on them as their conventional military has, has fallen down and has not been at the up to par as it was during the Cold War, whether it be economic constraints or um, just you know time and where you can put, put your money into. The, Russia tends to have to rely on those things as the United States, they, their rival in some senses, sees they having a much more modern and advanced military they, they rely on the nuclear side much more than we do nowadays. So mm-hmm. it's, it's fascinating to see what the, yeah, what the mission of a 30 kiloton bomb would be on a MIRV. Um, in I mean, Kazakhstan. In Kazakhstan. But Kazakhstan, I mean, it's, it's sad because Russia, um, considered itself in the Soviet Union to be the leader of all these various countries. But really, they tested nuclear weapons in Kazakhstan. They didn't test them in Moscow. They didn't test them, um, anywhere where mm-hmm. the radioactive effects would affect their own individual citizens. So, so moving on maybe from the conceptual like strategic use of the weapons mm-hmm. that have been discussed in the movie, let's talk more about, you know, kind of the – let's get down to the brass tacks of, you know, what these things actually looked like in the movie. Like we were saying, it's like a giant snow cone mm-hmm. uh, or a giant ice cream cone almost. Ice cream cone. Same. Um, I mean yeah. co- cone-shaped. Right, right, right. Uh, we, we said, you know, is size of maybe like a, a coffin like – Five feet tall or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I mean, they, let, vary, let's they, vary, the, they, they vary in sizes, but that's okay. kind of. I mean, that's a that's just funny. I mean, the, the so generally size, accurate, generally accurate. I mean, the shapes okay. there. It seems like the size is about right. They seem. I think they probably weigh a lot more than they actually seem to indicate. Some of these estimates for these warheads are around a ton, um, which is why you have to have such large missiles to carry them because what they call throw weight, the how much carrying capacity the weapons can have, along with other things that they use like. They call them penetrative aids or decoys um, to use against missile defense systems. Like whatever they launch up, usually is in the, for the missile is called a throw weight. Uh, they tend to be pretty heavy. So I, they, they see like about six or seven guys in the movie carrying one of these things. I mean, it seemed like most of the people that were working for Crimson Jihad were pretty big Arnold's uh, <laughs> weightlifting buddies. So it all seemed to work out pretty well. Uh, but I mean, it seemed like they got that size of that kind of stuff pretty right. Now, how difficult would it have been, you know, if these things were attached to these, you know, bigger missiles? And, you know, from what I remember of of all the movies mm-hmm. I've watched with nuclear weapons attached to missiles, you know, they're pretty big. You know, I mean, could that be done easily? Or, I mean, would you have needed, 
you know, multiple scientists and specialists in order to get those off of, you know, rockets in order to be able to transport them in well, small cases. I don't – I mean it's hard to tell because a lot of this stuff's classified um, and I don't have a clearance. <laughs> so take – that may be probably just lost all of our listeners already. Um, but one of the things that I found that are really interesting – and this happens in a lot of different movies – is they take something that's not a suitcase bomb or some sort of a bomb that's meant to be exploded at ground level by just holding it. They take these things that are from MIRVs, that are missiles. Like these things are, these warheads are designed to be put into space and come down and blow up either 10,000 feet above the ground, which is, or 1,000 feet above the ground, or at ground level. I mean, these things are programmed into the warhead. So, and these are done to prevent unauthorized use so that someone can't just steal a warhead and turn off a, a missile key and, and turn then a key. press the button. They talked about a, a firing box in this movie. Okay, look, I, I don't know. We're going to get to the key in a second. I'm sure that's a thing, but most of these things, they talk about this stuff. You hear about PALS, these permissive action links that they, after the Kennedy administration, we put on all of the U.S. missiles. These are things, these are codes that you have to be able to program to turn the bomb on so that it actually hmm. works. It's to prevent. Things from being is this related stolen. to the football? Or no, the... no, not, not really the football. The football okay. will – the football will – the nuclear football that you're referring to. We'll talk about that probably in another episode. Okay. That essentially is the – it's to verify that the president, whoever – in the United States, it's the president, the secretary of defense, and then mm-hmm. there are represented delegates that are what's called the national command authority. These are the people who have the ability to authorize a nuclear launch. Okay. Now, it's not a simply a matter of like you can use the nuclear football. You can't really use it to launch an attack. What it does is it allows you to communicate with the people verify who the launch people it. Communicate. Verify the people that are giving the orders. And then yeah. the individual weapons themselves have um, codes that you have to be able to access them so that the, the weapons themselves can be turned on, ready to fire. But not only that, these weapons are designed to – they have certain sensors on them um, that are to basically to determine where they're going to be launched off and firing. So we talk about this. These are called uh, – the SAFE system, S-A-F-F, safing, arming, fusing, and firing. These are procedures that a nuclear terrorist or anyone that steals one of these weapons, either be a, be a rogue commander that wants to fire these things, they have an arming sequence that requires changes in altitude, in acceleration, and other parameters that the warhead sensors have to verify. Um, meant to be – basically, they have to be used the way they're meant to be used. So most warheads are not meant to be left on a timer and then left to go off because that doesn't make a lot of sense from a, a use. I mean, imagine a military trying to do something like that. That's not how they how they do those. Now, there's some right. that are designed for that, but the vast majority, probably over 98% of them, aren't designed to do that. They're meant to be dropped from an airplane, put in a missile, and dropped from space or a cruise missile. They have parameters because that's why the sensors themselves, if you want something to explode at 10,000 feet, mm-hmm. it will know where it's at 10,000 feet because it can determine the altitude. Uh, if you want an air burst, if you want a ground burst, but maybe right before it hits the ground instead of it having to actually hit the ground because if it hits the ground, then it breaks and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. If it hits the ground um, or explodes right before it hits the ground, that's another thing. So these are the kind of things that if a nuclear terrorist wanted to just steal a bomb off the shelf and then use it, it has to get past these things. And the fascinating thing is, is that bomb makers themselves, people who actually build these things, know how a bomb works, but they don't know – how these things are supposed to go off from the arming sequences. The people who are in uh, a B-52 ready to launch right. one of these bombs, they may know the arming sequence, but they don't know the internal mechanisms of how these things are supposed to work. Right. You compartmentalize all these different stuff right. so that one person – Which is the aim, right? Which I is mean, the aim. So you can – So not one person can and, use it. Yeah. 
Um, that way you have to go through all these different steps because these are very dangerous things. So that's why it's, it's funny, uh, how this would actually work. So Stephen Younger, who is a big expert, um, who works on these kind of issues and has written a number of books on this. The quote that I like to say is, he says, there are only a few people in the world who have the knowledge that can cause an unauthorized detonation or nuclear weapon. Uh, people do, you can't just grab one off the shelf and enter a code and make it go boom. It doesn't work like that. Now, except in the movies, except in the movies, but maybe they came up, maybe they had an expert hacker on the staff that was able to hack into these individual systems and work on that. Okay. I mean, it makes it for entertaining purposes, but it's just funny that an ICBM launched warhead would have an ignition key. Right. Seems kind of odd. Also, you wouldn't want to have your launch thing to be just a key. Now, there are keys to... I lose my keys all the time. You lose your keys all the time. And, People can steal know, keys. Good they, thing I'm not in the ranks of nuclear personnel. But that's why you Joel, always... Joel, where are your keys? Uh, left them at home. Jerry's got them. Jerry's got them. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, that's why, that's why sometimes you have things being stolen from the Soviet Union because... The U.S. audiences can always just assume that the Soviets didn't really have their stuff together. So that's why that's why this thing works the way it does is because they're crazy. Okay. Now, wh- another thing I want to ping you on is um, after the first bomb goes off, mm-hmm. we then have the um, the big scene with on the highway where <laughs> the Harrier jets uh, – and this is one of the key things, if I remember correctly, that made the movie so expensive mm-hmm. – where they actually did blow up this highway uh, and then they proceeded to rebuild it and then blow it up again for additional shots. Yeah, we, we saw this when we right. yeah, we saw this when we drove down the coast uh, or down the keys right. in our convertible. You saw the looking. aftermath. Well, yeah. Jen, my, my my wife was uh, very upset because I kept yelling the bridge is out every couple of uh, miles and I think she just wanted it to It was just lost on her. She just wanted to watch the sunset. But not on this audience. Mm-hmm. Hope not. Yep. So during that scene, they not only shoot these vans that are holding two of the remaining three warheads, uh, they also proceed to shoot missiles at them, blow up the, the trucks. Mm-hmm. But it's and, okay because Arnold or, – or Tom Arnold says it's fine. Right, right. Well, yeah. So there's this little exchange with the, the guys in the jets who are like, hey, if we shoot this thing, those things aren't going to go off. And they're like, oh, no, it's fine. And then there's like a little look between – Tom Arnold's character and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they're like, uh. as as, as and, said by uh, someone that wants to fire a missile at something, right? And can I just say, if 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 you guys are leading the effort to save the United States from three remaining nuclear blasts, and you guys don't even know if they're going to go off, that's kind of scary, a little little unsettling. So I'm just curious, shooting a missile, shooting a bunch of uh, you know uh, bullets from mm-hmm. a from a jet. What's that going to do if it's if it's hitting a nuclear blast? I know in action movies, you shoot a car, you shoot any vehicle with one single bullet anywhere. You can shoot the tire. That thing is blowing up, yeah. especially in an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. But apparently, it does not mean a nuclear bomb will go off. So I'm curious, how do I reconcile those two? I think this is an issue that a lot of people have thought about for a long period of time. When we first had the the when the first two bombs were dropped on Japan. The people piloting the planes were concerned that this would go off because of how much of a hair trigger some of these things might have had. Uh, they since have since then have worked through this and have tried to modernize the firing mechanism for a lot of at least in the United States the warheads. There was a concern that warheads, if they were hit by lightning, it would set off the conventional explosions that cause a nuclear bomb to go off. So it all depends on the type of bomb design that you have. Uranium-based bombs that are purely uranium tend to be made 
what's called a gun design. Um, these things, to be able to go off, you need to have a critical mass of the fissile material. Those things you don't want to store in critical mass size. And what that means is like compact close enough with a certain percentage of the weapons grade uranium. You need to have that small and compact so that once you hit the first neutron that separates the, the uranium atom and it causes more neutrons to be separated and fired about. Well, atoms are very small. There's lots of open space. You want to compact those things as closely as possible. You do other things called a tamper to be able to make it so that when a neutron leaves the area, it bounces back and stays in that area so that these things can constantly go off. That's what's called criticality. You want to be able to have one neutron destroy or to break apart one atom, and that causes more neutrons to come out, so then it exponentially grows. That one does two, that two does... Basically, it's like a reverse pyramid scheme. You have one person that gets two, and then get two. A chain reaction. So you don't store these things, these types of uh, uranium molecules and, and your compact area. You don't store them in a critical mass, because then anything can set them off, even maybe spontaneous uh, fission that occurs. So you keep these things in a gun design. What that means is one critical mass, subcritical mass, subcritical mass is fired into another subcritical mass. It puts them compact together. At that right moment, you introduce some neutrons, uh, igniter into it, and then boom, the bomb goes off. So that's one design. The other design is this implosion design that's tend to be used with a combination of either plutonium or uranium. It looks a lot like a soccer ball. Um, there are lots of these really high, uh, sensitive, highly tuned, conventional explosions that are packaged around it. So I say soccer ball because if you look at one of these things, you have the uranium and plutonium cores in the middle, and then you have these patches of explosions around the outside. They're all meant to go off at roughly the same time in a certain pattern to compact something from like the size of a soccer ball to the size of a golf ball. And then once it's in that tight packed area, then you introduce a neutron and that sets it off. So a lot of the concerns people have is that Anything that can set off a conventional explosion, like maybe some lightning that triggers right. the igniter. Or, or a missile or from a, missile. a Harrier jet while it's being driven at 80 miles an hour on a highway in the mm-hmm. Florida Keys. And then falls into the ocean. You know, just, just one scenario. So these are, these are all concerns people have. But there's a difference between a nuclear bomb, one, exploding without actually what's called criticality. It doesn't actually explode to the full yield that it's supposed to go to. If you take a nuclear warhead and you hit it with a missile, it may not actually cause a gigantic explosion that you see with a mushroom cloud, but it might still explode, causing radioactive material to fly. Which would then become... That's a big concern. That would be, in all practicality, what people refer to as a dirty bomb, right? Yeah. Where it's, it's you, you blow up the bomb. material and then... So, you know, you may not have the nuclear explosion, but you'd have a nuclear cleanup. Right. And that's, there's, there's other questions. We'll get to a movie with dirty bombs in it later on. But dirty bombs tend to be had because uranium itself is not a very good thing to put in a dirty bomb because its half-life isn't so great. Mm. Uh, it's not as dangerous as other stuff. So you put things like cesium. That's the really dangerous stuff oh, gotta watch you want to put in there. Plutonium would do the trick too. Um, but like things like a lightning strike people were concerned about um, that this would cause an explosion too. So, yeah, I mean – would would hitting a nuclear bomb with a missile maybe set it off? Maybe, probably not. These things have a lot of safeguards. There was a there's an example of a uh, a, a big accident that occurred in North Carolina where a a giant jet dropped accidentally dropped a nuclear bomb that was mm-hmm. armed, um, or maybe I don't care forget it was armed or not armed, but a number of the safeguards, something along the lines of like twenty out of twenty three of them failed, but the bomb still didn't go off, and that was dropped from an airplane, and they were able to recover some of that. Maybe some of them actually haven't been recovered. There's all kinds of examples. There's an example in Greenland where 
we, one of our jets that was carrying one of these things just crashed into an iceberg and they've never been able to find it or some sort of – so these things happen a lot. Sleep at night well, my friends. Yeah, they don't always go Sleep off. Tight. But that was a, that's certainly a concern. They try to make these things safer so that the only time they actually go off is when you want them to. Mm. But it doesn't make for exciting movies though. So probably what would have happened is they would have recovered the, the warhead. They would have had to do some stuff. Um, the ones that fell that were hit by the bomb, uh, the missiles from the Harrier jet, they probably would have recovered those things and I'm sure they would say that they were fine. But it's certainly a worry. But – whether or not they would actually go off to have a mushroom cloud like that, it's probably okay. Much but like the movie. Little shrug. It's like, yeah. I continue mean, on. We got some more terrorists. It's to how catch. you have to weigh it. You have to weigh right. the chance that it gets away and that it actually goes well, off. Well, that's true. Versus that's true. somewhere along the Keys. You which would it really, it would, highway. It would, yeah. devas- it would devastate the Key West economy if people couldn't go down mm-hmm. there to get their key lime pies anymore. They well, have to build a new bridge. Interesting to talk about uh, nuclear weapons that, that do disappear, uh, I believe. They refer to those as broken arrows. Broken arrows. Although in this Which movie be, they called it a bright boy alert. Bright boy. Like, I think they this kind of made that up for this. Usually they refer yeah. to it. We'll get to that later on in some other movie. But broken arrow is usually the the term that we refer to as something uh, – some sort of missile or nuclear-related component that's missing and could potentially go off. Um, but one thing I want to talk about is the idea of nuclear terrorism um, because this movie, it's obviously a major big plot of it and then – I mean, Joel, you, you read the, the summary of what the French movie was based off of, which is kind of interesting and timely given some of the stuff that's been going on in Paris right now. Yeah, I, it was, I mean, I, I just did some, some quick Googling just to get a little more background on it. And, uh, it actually, the original French film mirrors the True Lies adaptation. I mean, they, it was almost mm-hmm. like a truthful retelling of that story. I mean, down to the, the used car salesman having the apparent, affair with his wife and things like that. Uh, the one interesting thing is that I hadn't seen any mention of nuclear weapons involved, but apparently the final target was going to be a Paris stadium uh, for a bomb attack. So it was interesting, you know, thinking about it, you know, from the original film being potentially just a conventional bombing attack at a stadium uh, and kind of kicking it up a notch to a nuclear weapon uh, with terrorists in the United States. I, I just wondered, was that, you know, kind of Hollywood doing its thing of trying to amp it up. You know, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, so you got to kick it up a notch. And what better way to kick it up a notch from a you know conventional bomb? But oh, yep, got to go with a nuclear weapon. Uh, I haven't heard anything or seen any interviews mm-hmm. with Cameron confirming that. But uh, you know, I've got a microphone, so I'm going to go ahead and just wonder. You know, was that a um, maybe an instinctive uh, or some kind of reflex in Hollywood to really kick it up a notch, have a nuclear weapon? Well, the idea of nuclear terrorism or a non-state actor, someone that's not a state using a nuclear weapon to get some sort of political or or just murder people, some sort of political objective, whatever their objective happens to be, it's been around. It's concerned for quite a while. Oppenheimer, um, when the first bomb went off, uh, he even said something along the lines of um, if three or four men could smuggle in units for an atomic bomb, they could destroy New York. Um, This was something that a guy, Brian Jenkins, who wrote this article – Big terrorism expert um, wrote an article, International Terrorism, A New Kind of Warfare in 74, where he talked about the world's increasing independence on nuclear power may provide terrorists with weapons of mass destruction. So it's something that people have certainly been thinking about for quite sure. a while. But I mean right. it's, it is a real debate about whether or not terrorists have been trying to get nuclear weapons, have even want to be able to do it, and how easy it would be um, to be able to get their hands on it. That's why most mo- – I would say most of the people, the experts that look at this – are worried about a large-scale nuclear bomb, but they're really worried about these dirty bomb issues. Smugglers recently, 
um, there's an art AP article in the last couple of months saw that there were these in Moldova, they were able to run a sting operation of radioactive materials that were being smuggled out of Russia into various hands of people that wanted to buy these things, some which uh, the, the AP report that I saw um, talked about even ISIS being one of the potential buyers for these kind of materials. Uh, there were reports uh, in the 9-11 Commission that said al-Qaeda was trying to be uh, interested in trying to look for a nuclear bomb or some sort of radioactive material. These things are, are, are up in the air about whether or not they're how true some of these actual sources are, but it's certainly been a question that people look about. So you have to think about like what what is the objective about using one of these things? Is it to kill as many people as possible? Mm-hmm. Is it to have a have to or to still panic, which is a lot of what a dirty bomb would do. It wouldn't kill as many people as a new as a full scale nuclear bomb, but it would right. certainly have a lot of panic. You sent one of these things off in New York City and months and months and months these areas before they're cleaned up um, cannot be used. And the concern people would have about what the next thing might be, where it would go off, the economic impact it would have. These are things that you can get with a dirty bomb, which really have been a big focus of uh, U.S. operations uh, to be able to secure nuclear material. This is one of President Obama's big deal with the nuclear security summits. It's not just about weapons. It's about nuclear and radioactive material sources, things you find in hospitals with radioactive sources or things we used to use in nuclear power or nuclear research reactors. Why do you need to use highly enriched uranium as opposed to low enriched uranium? Where do you keep these things? Are they secure? These are all the concerns that people have been having and have been looking about for quite a while. Um, so you figure out how you'd be able to prevent terrorists from from getting the access to these materials. Access is usually the thing that people look at. Can't always have Arnold come in and save the day um, as much as we wish we could. He He's could. still going, man. Uh, but yeah, but that's my, like, during, during, during the 90s. Yeah, he's still going along strong. He's got free time. Um, especially as a time-traveling robot. Uh, so in the, 90, in the 90s, there was the Nunn-Luger program, which was about Senator Nunn and Senator Luger trying to be able to secure some of these materials from, from, from the former Soviet states. And then recently, though, that program has it was very successful in, in securing material. Uh, some of the stuff that I used to work on was on the, the Global Partnership uh, against the spread of weapons and material of mass destruction. Another one of these kind of efforts that the, that the G8 was putting together before Russia was kicked out of the G8. To be able to take things like nuclear submarines, Russia had all of these nuclear submarines that were degrading. They had material in them. They had to be able to figure out how to be able to secure those things. These are things that the United States has focused on and its partners. And Russia itself has expressed a lot of concern about this. But now with Nunn-Luger expiring and the global partnership not working very well, where are they going to do? How are they going to be able to manage this stuff? Is certainly a, a question people have. Hmm. So, going back to kind of where the movie was, when it was, where we are today. Uh, just talking about movies, mm-hmm. you know, outside of the the substance of the the nuclear issue. That movie was out in 1994. Um, I I read some background information that they had discussed a sequel that they'd even worked up a potential screenplay that, you know, is kind of in the can ready to go. If the stars aligned between Arnold and all the others, as, as well as the other kind of movie making logistics that are required before Arnold became governor of California. Right. I, yeah, I assume so. Presumably. Uh, but the interesting question is, um, could that movie, either the first one or the sequel be made today? And I did see a quote, um, and I should say I have not double-checked any of these quotes or uh, mentions that I – you know, because 
Why do I need to do that? It's you free, guys can do it's that. It's a free podcast. Yeah, feel free to correct us. You know, that's an interactivity, uh, interactive portion. Anyways, James Cameron was quoted as saying that the the sequel never happened because, uh, especially after 9-11, uh, terrorism just isn't as funny anymore. And I, I must confess that, you know, I laughed at, at first at that, just how, you know, just he laid it very bare that, you know, you know, um, audiences have changed in, in how they view movies. And mm-hmm. after 9-11, you know, all sorts of things changed, especially in you know, pop culture and things like that. And, you know, it made me think of, you know, if I think of movies that I've seen recently or even the last five, ten years, when I think of an entire city being put at risk, things like that, some giant explosive device, I can't think of many movies where it's been because of a rogue terrorist group that may resemble, you know, elements of, you know, real life terrorist groups. But instead, it's certain comic book movies or uh, other kind of sci-fi bad guys, which are a little further afield of what we see in reality today. And so I wonder, is it maybe more palatable to have that Mm -hmm. same sense of world annihilation or or city-wide danger if it's because of an alien attack or some type of supervillain attack, Mm -hmm. but it may be harder to get a movie made today like True Lies in 1994 if it resembles reality a little too much. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's, that's probably true. Um, certainly a lot of the people, the comedy element of that, there's certainly been action movies, I think, where we'll, I'm sure we'll do uh, Mission Impossible 4, Ghost Protocol, yep. where that was a nuclear weapon that was stolen, and then they had to get the codes to be able to launch those weapons, or at least not weapons wasn't stolen. I remember that. They had, the, they had a weapon that was, they wanted to get the, the launch sequence to be able to fire one of these things. So, but those aren't terrorists necessarily in terms of what we think about those kind of things. I certainly do terrorize and like activities. That guy wanted to to launch a bomb to start a war. Um, but I believe he was even a some kind of ex Nazi yeah, or something and, like that. Well, that. That was that was some of all fears. See, a lot of these scenes kind of blend together. Oh, I think yeah. this guy was a Russian nuclear strategist, which is pretty funny. Oh right, to think right, right. about uh, yep. a former academic nuclear uh, strategist wanting to start a war. Um, so I, I think you you alternate kind of where you go with these stuff, but if these movies are made, I think you're right, James or James Cameron is right. They're not funny anymore unless they're just over the top hilarious. This kind of movie, True Lies, fit this action ma- mold as well as a comedy mold. Uh, it's it's interesting. I don't know if it could be made nowadays. Um, yeah, it certainly would be made. You couldn't make a movie about. Paris being under a terrorist attack or bombing a, right. a stadium just yet. I'm sure someone will make that eventually, but um, these kind of things are might be a little sensitive for this point. And so I, I almost wonder. True Lies, I think, still holds up in many in many ways. It's still you know, pretty entertaining from yeah. from the effects because you know obviously they did a lot of it won more, an Oscar. Yeah, they did more <laughs> physical effects. So just from a movie making standpoint, it, it holds up. Unlike many other movies, I think that that you see that maybe rely too much on computer graphics or things like that. Well, I think it's it's but, certainly interesting, and especially the idea of of nuclear terrorism. I'm sure that that's a motif that we'll see in a lot of the movies that we'll cover. Right. Um, the idea about whether or not a terrorist um, would even want to go after a nuclear bomb, because these things are really hard to to steal an existing nuclear warhead and smuggle right. those things out. That because once a nuclear bomb itself, a full scale, ready to go bomb. Is something that people care a lot about, making sure that no one steals it. Nuclear radioactive material, things you would steal from a hospital or from a, a research reactor, those kind of things, that might be a little bit easier to steal. 
So it depends on the terrorist organization's risk-adverse nature. Some of them might be willing to say, we could get the same impact from a dirty bomb, or we can get the same impact from having some people with AK-47s running around the street blowing people up. The idea of going for the big bomb with a nuclear weapon, it's hard. There's a lot of steps that could go wrong. Uh, Some of the concepts that we'll we'll talk about in, in future movies, like it's not simply a question of the terrorist organization only has to succeed once. And the United States has to succeed every, um, single time. every single time to be able to prevent them. It's true, sure, but the logic also gets invert and inverted. And this is a, a major concept of a book that I'll recommend at the end called On Terrorism, On Nuclear Terrorism by Michael Levy in 2007. It's also reverse logic. At every step within a plot, terrorists need to get it right every single time because each one of those steps to get to that they could get caught. They right. can, yeah, exactly. So these are complicated endeavors that go through. So. Whether or not it, a nuclear bomb is something that a terrorist organization would use for whatever objective they want to get, because there's also ideas. If you fire off a nuclear bomb in a city, it indiscriminately kills a number, a great number of people. You may lose support from people that you may have been able to get um, this humanitarian idea that Crimson Jihad had. You may lose a lot of support, but it may also be a fledgling, is uh, like Islamic State, a, a nuclear power or a, a terrorist organization that wants to be able to prove that it's on the national, international stage and right. as a big deal. Maybe a nuclear bomb is a way to do that. So it depends on what the objective is. So I think it's interesting that a, a movie like this could it be made now, maybe, but because I think it depends on whether or not um, how the public, people that actually watch these things, understand nuclear terrorism. People probably haven't thought about how hard it is to get these things and to go off. They just have seen movies where it's a plot device that James Bond is, is in charge of stopping. So it, it could understand it being made nowadays because it's something that people are used to. Yeah. So I don't know. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I think that movie still holds up regardless of the nonsense, the nuclear nonsense that takes place there. Um, I, I would say that uh, this is a, this is a good movie and I would probably recommend it to people. Oh, definitely. I, 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 we were talking about this as we were watching some of the scenes where Arnold's trying to be funny. Uh, and, and by and large, I would say he succeeded, especially with Tom Arnold. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I think people underestimate, just how critical he was to making the ridiculousness of Arnold being kind of a mild-mannered computer salesman kind of work. Um, I don't know why this wasn't a breakout role for him. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I, I think, you know, uh, there are other Arnold movies where it does not work. And I think just in terms of his sense of humor and, mm-hmm. and things like that. But I felt like with this one, they got it right where from the beginning to the end – there is a sense of danger and, you know, the typical action movie like going back to the days of Commando and, you know, all that stuff. Jingle all the way. Right, exactly. But starting to move into that uh, stage of Arnold being able to kind of laugh at himself, not take himself too seriously. And he got the right balance. Maybe later movies he took himself – well, he went a little too far into the comedy, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Jingle well, All the Way. I, I'm sure we'll get – we'll probably won't get to Kindergarten Cop, but we'll – Right. It's definitely right on our uh, the, our minds. Um, so yeah, I mentioned I mentioned uh, on nuclear terrorism by Michael Levy, which is a good rundown of the type of defense systems that we have or should set up to be able to address nuclear terrorism. But there's two other books that can have competing ideas on this that I think it's good to recommend. So you don't just watch the entertaining stuff, but you also learn a little bit. Uh, nuclear terrorism: the ultimate preventable catastrophe by Graham T. Allison in 90, 2004. That was a, a book that is very concerned about nuclear terrorism threats and. And predicting whether or not these things are going to be uh, in, in our reality and in our actual day-to-day threat uh, concerns. Um, then you have the other side of this, which is uh, Atomic Obsession by John Mueller in 2010. He disagrees with the, the threat 
of nuclear terrorism. Certainly it would be bad if it happened, but it's, by his perspective, a, a very largely overstated and exaggerated threat, all the steps that have to go into it. Things we talked about earlier. So that's the first episode. We hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, we're going to try to make each episode better than the last, but in order to do that... We want to hear from you. You have any ideas about what kind of movies or TV shows we should watch or any sort of guests to bring on to talk about these kind of things with us? Please let us know. You can reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. We're also on Twitter at nuclearpodcast. And email email us at supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and, and see what you guys think about this. We'll try to announce our next movie ahead of time on Facebook or Twitter so you can submit questions to us for areas to cover. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. See you next time.